What's up, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this week's episode of Armchair Producers. Coming from and made of parts unknown, I am one of your hosts, Georgetown, alongside the man who always kickstarts my heart, Mr. Travis Croft. How are you, sir? I am fine and dandy, but a little tired. That was mm-hmm. my birthday in the weekend. Uh, thanks to the hordes of fans who sent gifts. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's been quite a The impromptu signing was quite nice, little touch. It was. I, I thought so at the uh, at the, uh, the pub on Saturday mm. night. Uh, it was, you know, if you see me in public and I'm eating, just leave me alone, okay? I mean, it's just that it's getting annoying. <laughs> celebrity um, is as celebrity does. <laughs> it's life in the fast lane, I guess. But it was, um, it was fun. I get to see... Um, Nick Cave up at uh, Hanging Rock on uh, Friday night, which was soggy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just the, the hordes of birthday wheel wishes on the weekend. But um, And back to work this mm-hmm. week, which is um, just joyous and uplifting as is all day job. <laughs> yep, that is one way of putting it. <laughs> how are, how yeah. are you going? So you've rearranged the room. People, the eagle-eyed amongst their fans might have noticed things a little bit different behind you there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I have uh, rearranged the room a little bit to make it more of a professional set, shall we say, because the other day I formally applied for the position of Prime Movie Buff for Prime Video Online. So I had to put together a little video, little basically me doing this, but with hashtag Prime Movie Buff rolling along the bottom of the screen and uh, it's like a little list of my top 10 uh, favorite movies, which is actually a list of 50 plus blah, 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 blah. So how many of us are on Prime Video, I wonder? Not many. Don't know. Don't know. We'll, we'll, see. we'll see how it all goes, but hopefully, fingers crossed, I will actually get paid to do this very job, fingers, ladies and gentlemen. Fingers I'm crossed good. Uncle Jeff comes to the table. Come on. We, we, we all know. We all know that he listens. He, he may not admit it. Secretly, in his heart of hearts, he listens. You can just see him curled up in the ball in his bed in his giant mm-hmm. fucking mansion by himself, ah, yeah. a la Richie Rich, you know. Um, and uh, <laughs> just 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 his laptop there, like like most you know, like a teenager streaming mm-hmm. the show, mm-hmm. so he doesn't feel quite so alone. And yeah. you know what, Jeff, you're not alone. We're here. You're not. We're with you. Mm-hmm. You know, don't keep up. A good, keep fighting a good fight, Jeff. Exactly. Exactly. Now, let's get on with the They don't need bathroom breaks. They don't. (laughs) Those pee bottles are fine. (laughs) Now, we've got a bit of a packed show for you, and we've got some things that I'm going to be talking about. We haven't done in a little while, actually. This is something that maybe my co-host hasn't had a chance to to check out a link that I sent him earlier the other day. But we have got our chain movie of the week, which is the um, Inaratu-directed Birdman from a few years ago. I get to pick the new movie this week. Um, Travis watched Amsterdam. We have both watched Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas special. Um, I ch- uh, checked out Wednesday on Netflix and Reacher on Prime Video. And I am very nearly caught up to date on the peripheral as well. But the special one is going to be a little bit of a conversation about Rammstein and their new album, Zeit, which I've kind of fallen in love with a little bit. Wow, but, we haven't talked about music in a while, and here I am, and I haven't listened to it yet. Unbelievable, unbelievable. But, ladies and gentlemen, 
let's get into the meat and potatoes of the show. Let's get into the chain movie of the week, which is Birdman. Or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. Sorry, I didn't know that one. We're here a week, people. Trevor Beal. Um, <laughs> so I picked Birdman because I'd never seen it before. Mm. Uh, a washed-up superhero actor attempts to revive his fading career by writing, directing, and starring in a Broadway production. Alejandro Inarritu, I, I mm-hmm. actually, I was hopefully getting that right, um, wrote and directed along with Nicholas uh, Giacciboni and Alexander Dinolaris. I'm so Australian. I can't mm-hmm. pronounce shit. Um, starring an all-star cast, uh, Michael Keaton, who won the Academy Award for this as Regan, uh, Zach Galifianakis, almost unrecognisable as his manager and friend Jake, yeah. Uh, Ed Norton playing himself, um, Andrea Riseborough playing Laura, Emma Stone as uh, Sam, and uh, Naomi Watts uh, popping up as Leslie. Um, might be a few other familiar names. Our actual link to the last week's show, uh, last week's film, last film, sorry, was Amy Ryan, who plays the role of Sylvia. She was, of course, in Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Yes. Um I had a feeling this is um I remember what hearing about this film being incredibly divisive. Mm-hmm. Um you look at its rating online at 7.79 on IMDb, uh, which is you know is a is a perfectly fine rating, it's a good rating, but for a film this acclaimed, you know, yeah. um you might expect you know a little higher. Um, yeah, that's fair. But you know, if you look at the actual you can look at the spread of votes. 2.3% of people rated this uh, a one. Um, and, you know, there's also a significant portion around six or seven there. So mm-hmm. um, I went into this kind of expecting to find this to be the artiest art film that art films recently. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it was going to art all over itself. Because yeah. um, that's kind of my impression of Alejandro Inaratu is that he's kind of very... Um, he makes movies for him. him. Yeah, think, think Paul W. Paul Anderson. You know, like um, mm. you know uh, that French the French Connection last year. He kind of makes films uh, that Paul, he's mm. like you know him and his fans like. Yeah, but they get to the point where they're kind of like so self indulgent and so quirky that you know you kind of get lost in them and they lose the point. Um, I yeah. didn't like French Connection. Um, this was a gigantic breath of fresh air and an absolute delight to find that, well, yeah, there are some artsy, quirky elements in there mm-hmm. that the the, story, the central story um, keeps it rolling along really nicely. The characters are beautifully drawn and the acting is superb. The cinematography is amazing. The music, oh my God, the music was amazing. This film didn't win an Academy Award for um, Best um, Score for a very technical reason, people. Um, but it's a it's a massive oversight, and um, you know, jazz is not technically music in the Oscars' eyes. <laughs> not quite, but um, you know, only metal. That's it. They just had an only metal guitars, man. You know, did Ozzy score something this year? Um, <laughs> it, it, um, it really did have a very specific reason. Uh, Antonio yeah. Sanchez who won, I believe, just about every other award there was to win that year for best score because, I mean, the score, how good is the fucking score? It's amazing. Um, his celebrated musical score, performed almost entirely by drums, was disqualified by the music branch of Ampus, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, 
because it didn't fit their criteria. Sanchez had received a note from the award committee explaining the decision, quoting Rule 15, and writing that they felt the fact that the film also contains over half an hour of non-original, mostly classical music cues that featured very prominently in numerous pivotal parts of the film made it difficult for the committee to accept your submission. They appealed the Ampers decision. A special meeting of the music committee was held, but that was a, a rip snorter. Uh, and although its members had great respect for the score and considered it superb, they thought that the classical music was also used for scoring and equally contributed to the effectiveness of the film and that the musical identity of the film was not created by both the drums and classical music. The Academy's decision was not overturned. Nevertheless, the score was recognised at every major precursor award. They won a Grammy, Critics' Choice Award, and uh, was nominated at the Gold Derby Awards, the Golden Globes, and the BAFTAs. Mm. So that is the most obscure... Oscars related fact I've ever heard, but um, mm-hmm. everything about this film is incredible. It's it's I would uh, a breathtakingly, outstandingly brilliant film. I loved it. What mm-hmm. you, this is not your first time watching it, though, right? No, I watched it when it first came out, um, and I remember being blown away by it. And the more than anything. Uh, because I I have vague memories of 2014. And um, I remember, I think this was one of those times where there actually were a few films and um, directors that were really playing with the idea. And there are three, uh, two in particular, that have still kept it going as one of their classic things. So there's Inratu and there's Alfonso Cron smart editing or single take and this movie is basically up until the end edited to look like one fluid camera movement which it's not but it's just it's not but it's edited to look and feel like that and it gives you this phenomenal window into um kind of the mindset of not only Michael Keaton's character um, Riggan but also the the life of this Broadway theatre and how close it all is everything feels so tight and it's narrow corridors and there's just stuff everywhere there's mess everywhere and then anytime they go up to the roof or um, when Riggan is in his underwear and trying to get round back into the theatre. The world seems just huge and it serves to just make everything that we're seeing, these really intense emotional breakdowns and build-ups that we, we are witness to seem even more insignificant when brought out into the real world. It's phenomenal use of production to tell story. Uh, it's become a bit of a thing, hasn't it? Because, I mean, the other one who kind of jumped on that bandwagon was Sam Mendes um, for 1917. Um, yeah. I think that was pretty much two shots the entire film, if I'm not mistaken. There was one cut, I know there's one cut in the middle, mm. but I don't know if they did that just through clever editing or the um... I think that was clever editing the only movie as far as I'm aware that has actually done a single take through the whole thing Russian arc. Russian arc yeah I saw it at the cinema <laughs> I was that guy um yeah. it's a, a hard watch um yeah. if you don't speak Russian um yeah. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, I think you're right. But it was um, it's become a bit of a gimmick, I think. But um, mm. it really works in this film's favour. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little about the story. So we um, we meet uh, uh, Regan, played by Michael Keaton, hovering in his dressing room in his underpants. Uh, as sort of a synopsis, uh, he is a former the superhero star. He starred in the uh, a series of superhero films called Birdman. Um, mm-hmm. We get the impression that that is now well and truly in his past, and he's now trying to resurrect his career and gain some degree of uh, credibility by uh, putting on a play at a well-known New York theater, uh, the St. James Theater, which is a real theater, which is where they shot a lot of it, I think. Um, yeah. Except it's nowhere near as shitty as it makes it look in this film. Apparently, it's a very nice theater. Yeah. Um, um, and he's put on this play that he's actually written based on a Raymond Carver short story. I'd never even heard of Raymond Carver until I went to a short story writing workshop about three months ago. So I'm in the know now. Um, oh, you're one of those ones. Yeah, you know, I actually, the guy who taught, I mean, it was one of those things where I went to this workshop and like everyone was like, we were around going nodding, oh, yeah, it's Raymond Carver. I'm sorry, I've never even heard of this guy. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, this is not going particularly well. Uh, one of the stars of his play, he's not particularly keen on as an actor. Uh, he's having troubles with his daughter, played by uh, Emma Stone as Sam. Um, he's basically burnt through all his money that he earned in his uh, days playing Birdman and now is sort of mortgaging his home to try and get this thing off the ground. Um, it's what a credible opening to the film. Only sort of broken when a light falls onto the head of the um, the actor who they're not too keen on playing the role, mm-hmm. uh, which opens up the opportunity for his um, uh, role to be played by the much better known and much more accomplished Mike, played mm. by Edward Norton, who I did joke earlier as playing himself, but you know, rumors of his attitudes on set. And yeah, life imitates art, imitates life. I wonder how much of I mean, I found myself thinking while I was watching it, how much of this is improv? Mm. Um, how much of that did did Edward Norton kind of suck into the character of Mike and then you know put back out there? But apparently, as you note, uh, while there is a lot of clever editing, a lot of these were fairly long shots. Mm. So uh, it's not all, you know special effects and, and clever editing. These were very long takes. Mm. Um, uh, and the uh, you can see in the, um, uh, the trivia on IMDb, the, the amount of work the actors had to put in uh, rehearsing um, mm. what, what to say and when to hit their marks. Um, sounds like it was pretty intense. Mm. Um, and it was almost, it's been described as almost a dance. Just to know mm. when to drop into the scene, to come around a corner and say your line and you, know, you had to hit your mark on the spot, otherwise you're going to ruin a take and it'd have to come back in you know, 10, 15 minutes and do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be annoying. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in amongst this mix, um, so Mike is uh, the husband, ex-husband, lover, partner of uh, Naomi Watts' Leslie, who is starring in the play. Yep. Uh, they have a, an antagonistic relationship. And it's fair mm-hmm. to say that true to form, Mike is kind of a prick. To mm. just about everyone. The first time he meets um, Sam, he basically uh, sexually harasses her. 
Um, mm-hmm. Not that that turns out to be entirely unwelcome, but I heard later on we find out. Mm-hmm. Um, in amongst us, we have Zach Galifianakis' Jake, who is sort of the, the straight man to, to mm-hmm. Riggins' dreamer. He's uh, Riggins' friend and producer, I guess. Yes. Uh, and just trying to keep this thing on the fucking rails. Um, and so we've got all these incredible players at the 12A lead up towards opening night of this play. Yeah. Um, one thing that I quickly noted about this film, which I hadn't expected, was the uh, insertion of um, the, the element of magical realism. Mm. Um, so all the way through the film, we quite regularly see uh, Martin Keaton having a conversation with Birdman. Mm. Or what you know, it's almost like the, the figure of Birdman or a poster of Birdman. We hear Birdman, Birdman's voice talking to him. Uh, we meet him, as I said earlier, hovering in the middle of a room in his underpants. Um, we quite regularly see him exercise um, almost acts of telekinesis where he moves things across the room just by moving his hand, you know, or thinking it. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I think this film does particularly well is you don't for a second ever think this is real. Um, it's a storytelling technique. I'm guessing it's kind of up to the audience to think about what we really, you know, what mm-hmm. really does happen. And that final scene, um, in the, I'm not going to spoil it in case you haven't seen it, um, does land the I-45. Sorry? <laughs> the scene in the motorhome in the I-45. On the I-45. I-45. Well, I thought the scene where he opened the box in the middle of a field um, mm. and, you know, then shot John Doe was... I did not see that coming. Yeah. Um, and John Doe ended up becoming um, Josh Brolin. It was weird. Um, and they were brothers all along. Who knew? <laughs> um, but uh, what did you make of that that element of, of you know, what well, I've heard it called magical realism. It's, it's basically as if something supernatural is happening, but they use it as a story techni- technique rather than a hmm. actual, this guy has superpowers. I love that kind of thing because it, antagonizes people's kind of sense of what is this people are so programmed in modern society to be going into a movie and knowing what to expect a la black adam it's a superhero movie it's starring dwayne johnson you know what you're gonna fucking get and there's a certain amount of safety in that. You feel like, yep, it sets your expectations. Whereas something like this, where it is a mystery um, of what it is, it's, it, it evokes conversation. And I love when movies do that. Obviously, not every movie can bloody do that. That I understand that. But just as that that delicious little bit of peppering in the Hollywood system that just occasionally comes out, it's, um, as you said right at the beginning, it's a breath of fresh air. It is so refreshing to just see that and just see so many actors from a variety of generations of acclaim and slash fame, however you want to put it, coming together in a performance and seeing the younger talent of someone like Emma Stone versus the the older talent of Michael Keaton or the the permanent greatness that is um, Naomi Watts or Ed Norton and the the chameleon that is Zach Galifianakis. 
I was really surprised by him. I I don't think I've ever seen him do a serious role before. Um, I knew he was in this because I obviously saw his name in the Mm. credits and stuff. And like, you kind of go, I think that's Zach Galifianakis playing the manager producer guy. But like, he doesn't sound like Zach Galifianakis. He doesn't talk like him. And, you know, worry not. This film is a dark comedy. Yeah. It's actually a very funny comedy at times. Yeah. Um, uh, but Zach Galifianakis doesn't get one of those laughs, I don't think. No, um, really. uh, and I found myself thinking, why does he not do more serious work? Because he's mm. quite formidable in this role. Yeah, I'm just looking at his list on IMDb, and this is it that I can see. Um, so I really... I would love to see him do stuff like um, it kind of kind of got me a little bit like um, when Seth Rogen was in um, uh, the Steve Jobs movie. He played and, uh, um, Wozniak. Yeah. And how how different he was and how subdued he was considering what we are very, very accustomed to seeing Seth Rogen play. Zach Galifianakis is either that annoying blubby guy that's the best friend and the the butt of every joke, or he's playing it really just razor-sharp, cutting comedy in Between Two Pines. Those are the things that I really think about for him, and this was just like, what the fuck? <laughs> it was brilliant. It was, I mean, it's not, it's such a cliche now, right? Like, <laughs> Brilliant comedic actor has starring dramatic turn with uh, Steve Carell, Jim Carrey, Robert Williams, notably, you know, was, you know, mm-hmm. every bit the dramatic actor as he was the comic actor. Um, mm-hmm. I think those other two guys probably don't get the credit they deserve for their dramatic acting, frankly, but um, um, maybe he doesn't enjoy it. I don't know. But like he was, uh, he was amazing in this. Fantastic. Yeah. Obviously Michael Keaton uh, won best picture for this role. Uh, it's kind of the, the film that kind of kickstarted his career. So it's kind of a, a nice, um, uh, you know, piece of, again, art imitating life there, mm-hmm. you know, in the sense that, of course, he was most famously known in the role of Batman. Mm-hmm. What did he do after Batman? Not much, you know, uh, not much of note. I mean, I'm sure he was doing things, but the only film I think I can remember him starring in post-Batman before this was probably... Um, multiplicity. Uh, where he did uh, much ado about nothing, where he was great as uh, Dogberry. Was uh, that the uh, Joss Whedon one? No. Well, um, much ado about nothing. Joss Whedon did do, but this was the Kenneth Branagh version with um, Keanu Reeves. Oh, he was uh, in Jackie Brown. Oh, of course he was. I don't forget that. Um, but yeah, so he didn't do, he's not, he didn't pop up doing a lot. No. Uh, in sense, in terms of, um, he played the same, he played the same character in Out of Sight. I need to see Out of Sight again. Um, he played Ray Nicolette in Jackie Brown and he played Ray Nicolette in Uncredited in Out of Sight. Yeah. The, um, Steven Soderbergh film. I need to see that again. Um, but he did kind of drop off the face of a planet there from a guy who was, the, the front man, the face of one of the biggest movie franchises in the world. Yeah. He went back to doing lots of small stuff. And so interesting yeah. again to see him pop up and win his Academy Award and this. And from obviously from here, 
is gone. There's so many bigger and better things like um, who could forget his starring turn uh, in uh, uh, Morbius. In Morbius, um, in the uh, <laughs> yeah. in the closing credits as Vulture, when he said, "Hey, <laughs> it's Morbin time." Um, <laughs> um, right, say it again, and the wheel of Heigl will come back. There you go. <laughs> He's gone quiet. Uh, uh, sorry, I was having some connection issues. I don't know if it's you or me, um, but. Um, uh, but, but he's fantastic in this, and you just never quite know exactly what's going on. Is it real? Is it not real? I read yeah. some interesting stuff that compared the Birdman, Michael Keat, uh, Riggin sort of a relationship to almost Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, which is fascinating because, of course, there's mm-hmm. a scene where he passes the guy in the street um, reciting, you know, uh, Macbeth, um, you know, all sound and fury signifying nothing, you know. Um, Emma Stone was a shock here for me in the sense I am not an Emma Stone fan. I mm. think Emma Stone is one of the most vastly overrated actors in Hollywood today mm-hmm. in the sense that I think she plays Emma Stone in every film. Mm. Um, and uh, this was a really nice turn to see her. It looked like she was actually doing uh, doing something a little bit different mm. um, and actually inhabiting a character who is a little bit different to uh, the Emma Stone characters we're used to. I won't blame her for the Amazing Spider-Man films. She was just, she was only ridiculously miscast in those roles as a teenager, um, and, which were, you know, they were just terrible films as well. But mostly I, I'm, I'm genuinely un, unimpressed by, by um, she really bought her A-game. Um, yeah. And the scenes between her and uh, and Mike on the roof were, yeah. were some awesome. of the best stuff in the film. Yeah. Um, I really liked um, the, for lack of a better term, the monologue that she spews um, at Regan um, after he finds the, the, the bud, uh, the, the half-smoked joint, and um, she just kind of just spews out for a good, three minutes or something um it was great it was really great performance from her and it was really hard because the camera just kept on getting closer into her and she it was literally just just off center that she was kind of delivering this line so it was there was nowhere for her to hide and she delivered um you mentioned it earlier Naomi Watts in this someone who I think yeah, she popped up in that Niall Gibson film a while ago, uh, the boss level or whatever it was. Was it Mel Gibson? Boss level? Yeah, uh, but the one that was based on the video game, he keeps dying and, and coming back and, and had what's his face in it from um Oh uh, uh, for, for Frank Grillo? Yeah, Frank Grillo. Um yeah. we're very descriptive on this show. We know exactly what we're talking about. Uh, <laughs> boss level. Uh, and she just pops up, and it was Mel Gibson in that, and she just pops up in these terrible, terrible shithouse movies. You're like, but my God, she's such a good actor. Yeah. Um, yeah. She, was almost, she was in David Lynch mode in this film, I thought, mm. but that was exactly what this film called for. Um, mm. And uh, she didn't have a lot to do, but um, I, I thought she was outstanding yet again, and not just because she's Australian, and yeah. she uh, said no to her, the lamb roast of Tom Cruise. 
<laughs> she, if you don't know that reference, but she was in a TV commercial in the eighties for, mm. for for Lamb in Australia. Um, okay. And uh, that was the joke. She, um, she was offered a date with Tom Cruise. Uh, she decided to go for Lamb Roast instead. <laughs> All right. Um, but there you go. It's a, it's, it's a claim to fame. Um, but uh, hang on a second. I will get that, get that up. Is that going to be a <laughs> sponsor for this? No, no, no sponsor. It's just a <gasps> guest spot. Oh, my goodness. There we go. One is um, podcast people on... Um... Hello. Hello, Julie. Nice work, Julie. You've scored a dinner with Tom. Chris is virtually in a second. We'll take you to you and Tonight. I'm sorry, I can't. What? Mum's taste. Oh, great. Yeah. I hope you realise Okay, Tom Cruise. Never mind, love. You can go out with him any night. There you go. Strange wow. classic, there, my <laughs> friends. Um, podcast people, just just Google the name, name of Slam Roast if you want to see what you missed out on there. Um, but uh, that's why we, we we always have time for we always have time for Naomi. She knew she knew in the eighties that Tom Cruise wasn't quite right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she is, um, in fact, connective tissue for um, the ooh. next thing. But um, let's. Uh, this movie is more than the sum of its, its parts. It's like it. IMDb says that it's a comedy drama, and yes, it absolutely is. But it's an ensemble piece in so much more of an intricate way compared to like people think of um like wes anderson movies as ensemble pieces because he has his troop of actors that he always uses and they always interact with each other one and another but in this movie i kind of got the feeling that if you just took any one of those parts away the whole thing would crumble like like a house of cards. Whereas with something like a Wes Anderson movie, you could take away one character or another and the the thing would still keep going in the same direction as it needs to. This is a delicately woven together story. I think you're right. Um, all a Wes Anderson film would need would be standard of Aranac quirky. Very good. Mm. Um mm. I'm sure if they had, I mean, you can just start one person in, one person out. I mean, this cast had to obviously build that kind of chemistry together. Um, mm. And I mean, I guess that's kind of the genius of casting, isn't it? Right? To find the people and look at them and go, this group of people just works. Mm. Um, where we would go back to one of our personal favorites, you know, my fake fiance, um, the person who said, you know, Jerry Lawrence, Melissa Joan Hart, these people belong together on the big screen because they've got that chemistry. Um, <laughs> Um, <laughs> um, but you know, or we talked about it a few weeks ago that film Bros, where we had the two main stars mm. uh, who just didn't seem to have any chemistry on screen together. Very different kind of film to Birdman, but getting mm. that chemistry of the cast exactly right and casting Ed Norton as himself is genius. And the fact that Ed is happy to go and take the piss out of himself like that, um, 
you know, respect to him. Well, I mean, considering what Ed has done with his career in the interim, is I think that this may very well have been a bit of a mea culpa for him. Is it like, yep, I'm, I've been a dick. I'm going to play that. I'm going to own it. And I'm going to behave myself a little bit more going forwards because, you know, he probably really misses the money that he could have had if he had stayed on as um, okay. <laughs> Um, you're right. I mean, people, I think, fail to sort of get that about Ed Norton. Now, he was a big fucking star in the 90s, you know. Mm. Uh, if you look at his, his, you know, sort of work at the time. Okay. I mean, what what was the, what was his first movie? Um, uh, uh, the, Primal Fear. Primal Fear, that's right, yeah. Which is a great film into People versus Larry Flint, American History X, Rounders Fight Club, um, let's not mention Keeping the Faith, but the score, which starred Marlon Brando, uh, Frida, Red Dragon, 25th Hour, The Italian Job. Not all of those are great, but they were big films. Mm. Um, not to mention for Fight Club's almost an iconic film by now. Mm. American History X is very fondly remembered by a lot yeah. of people of our age, I think. And even if you go to the films that didn't do well, I actually think he was good in keeping the faith. And if you haven't seen Death to Smoochie, which is a ridiculous <sighs> film, but it's really fucking good. Like, yes. it's really, really good. And the fact that no one went to see it is not a reflection on how fucking good that movie is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, but even by the time he was the Hulk, his career had slammed the brakes on a little bit, you know. It had been a while yeah. before since uh, he'd had a, a big hit. So, mm-hmm. um, and after then, uh, you know, it's been bits and pieces around the place here and there. Like, you know, his um, connection to uh, Wes Anderson's films is kept him going in the Moonrise Kingdom and Grand Budapest Hotel, etc. Um, but he's not a big name star the way he was. No, no, he's not. But um, this movie definitely shows that he has still very much got the talent that he had on display. You don't lose it. He's in the glass onion. So maybe that will be his, um, his resurrection. Mm. I don't know how big of a role he's in that, but mm. if he gets that in the next couple of weeks, it's got a very brief cinematic run here in Melbourne. Yeah, I think so. I will not be able to see. It actually comes out just after Christmas, Boxing Day. Hmm. Did you have anything more to say on Birdman? I love this film. So um, if you're a bit like me and you saw bits of it and you thought it looked a bit too arty for you or, you know, it looked a bit pretentious, give this one a go. I am not into pretentious film. You sit here and just do not get me fucking started on Tenet and, you know, what um, uh, what Nolan did with that film. That is pretentious filmmaking is worse. Or a French connection, we talked about that. Fucking pretentious. This is just fucking brilliant filmmaking. Great storytelling. You can make up your mind about what the film's actually about or what it's really mm-hmm. doing. It's actually really fucking entertaining. You can just watch it. Um, don't have to care what's going on afterwards. Like, you're gonna be a fucking moron like me who's got no idea about subtext and just enjoy. How it. does it fit in with the bigger Inaratu universe, though? <laughs> the Inaratu uh, cinematic universe. Um, that would be oh, no, we can't have that. That's ICU. <laughs> <laughs> um, we could do the extended universe, ICU, or something. I don't know. Um, but oh, I mean, I'd love, I mean, what a fascinating thing it would be to give Inaratu, mm. you know. 
a Marvel film or a DC film. Um, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. I kind of feel like um, there are, considering um, other companies are so desperately trying to create that superhero franchise for themselves, um, I feel like there's there's like a an independent comic book that is just waiting for Inaratu to come in and just go, yep, I'll adapt that. And that'll be the kind of the gateway drug for that sort of thing. I w- <laughs> Maybe that Plastic Man uh, production you've been looking forward to. As long as it's not the Wachowski script, that, that thing was just trash. Uh, I'll happily <laughs> say that to anyone's face. Mine is well, better. It's, um, it's not surprising considering <laughs> what they put their names to these days. Uh, I, yep, so um, even with my choice, I pat myself on the back and go, good choice. I enjoyed that. It was a lot better well, than Penn and Teller die or get murdered or whatever it was, the Penn and Teller film we were almost going to watch. Chills, yeah. Now, let's go on to the other thing that we've both watched. Uh, is... Before you do that, though, oh. you've you got something. Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, the the link in the chain, I did say that uh, Naomi Watts was going to be the link in said chain. There's a number of movies that I could have easily gone with, but I decided to go with a bit of an unusual one, and it has got a relatively low IMDb score. Um, I'm just going to go to the particulars so I can give you information. 2017, um, it has got a 31 Metacritic score, 6.6 out of 10. This is The Book of Henry, directed by Colin Trevorrow, who has generally been living in the Jurassic World universe for a very long time now, but he did have um, Safety Not Guaranteed. Was that him? I think it was. I believe it was. Yeah, Safety Not Guaranteed. Yeah, good. I was suddenly thinking it might be someone else. Um, Which is a great little independent movie. This is a crime slash drama slash thriller, according to IMDb. Um, And this is a movie that I've never watched. With instructions from her genius son's carefully crafted notebook, a single mum sets out to recover, uh, rescue a young girl from the hands of her abusive stepfather. This... The trailer looks mildly interesting. It's got Naomi Watts in it. It's got Jaden Martell, um, who is... Yes, people may very well recognise him from um, Knives Out, and he played Bill uh, Denborough in uh, It, the young Bill, of course. Um, It's also got Sarah Silverman, Dean Norris, Lee Pace. um, Eddie Ziegler. If you don't know who mm-hmm. Maddie Ziegler is, Maddie Ziegler is the star in every Sire film clip. Ah, okay. Every single one of them. And there music. The horrible, horrible movie about autism she made last year that everyone hated. Ah, fair enough. Maybe there we'll watch go. that next week. Maybe. Um, if this is bad, that's what you're watching next week. Because I tell you what, this looks like trash. Trash. <laughs> <laughs> Um, how watching Book of Henry? Uh, hmm. Book of Henry is available to rent in all places, I think. Yes. So um, the Book of Henry, um, I kind of went with a, the odds it being shit because we've had some a run of very good films. We've been treated well. We've been treated yeah. well. We've been, we've been treated um, well. So I'm hoping 
against the odds that this will be a bit of a surprise. My expectations. Sometimes, sometimes it happens, you know. You, like, mm-hmm. I mean, you could think of Death Machine. That wasn't that bad. Um. <laughs> uh, now I um I, I saw a, an ad the other day about them adapting uh, Streets of Rage into a film. Um, the video game, the side-scrolling brawl. I, 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 I know. I, I remember for a minute, though, I got confused and thought they were remaking Streets of Fury. Uh, yeah. And I was like, like oh, they're going to make a musical action film again. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Yeah. They, they could bring back Willem Dafoe. He could still, still do it. He's still, he's still at the top of his game, people. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so book a Henry next week. But we are about to move on to, speaking of all things superhero, I think I know where you're going with this. Yes. Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas Special. The return of James Gunn to the MCU after the Twitter storm firing, rehiring debacle. And we have got the next thing on Disney+. Plus. So, uh, Star-Lord, Drax, Rocket, Madison, Groot engages some spiritish shenanigans in an old year original special crafted just for Disney+. Plus. Um, written and directed by James Gunn himself, uh, mm-hmm. starring all your favourites, Sean uh, Gunn, Karen Gillan, Michael Rooker, Pom Clementioff, Beth Batista, Chris Pratt, Bradley Cooper, uh, Vin Diesel, sort of, um, <laughs> and the great Kevin Bacon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, this is... Uh, did they turn it around? Did they turn Disney Plus... Marvel stuff around because I don't think they've done anything good since since One Division really. Mm-hmm. No, they didn't. No, they did not. So this has got a seven point seven rating from 20, 20, 40, uh, 21,000 votes on IMDb. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen people busily sucking uh, James Gunn's dick on Twitter, telling him how much they loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, you disagree. Yeah, I do. I mean, it does exactly what it sets out to do. I just don't like it, don't need it, didn't want it. Um, It was nice for them to be able to give Drax and Mantis more screen time. But in the process of doing that, I think they ended up harming those characters and harming the the Guardians of the Galaxy overall, because we got the the next uh, most like growth of Groot, um, and then brief. major major plot point mm. for the whole Guardian saga is dropped in this film. Oh, special! Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. The, major the plot point. I'm just going. Michelle and I had to pause and go. It's been a long time since Volume Two. Um, mm. did, was that in Volume Two? Because I don't remember. Um, no, it, we, we, it was not. <laughs> um, so I'm not going to spoil it for people in case they want to watch this. Spoiler sign is up. Spoiler sign is up. So you've got you've been warned. If you don't want to know anything about this, and trust me, we're doing you a favor by spoiling it for you. The fact that um, uh, Ego, Peter's father, is yeah. also Mantis's father, hence they are. Uh, half siblings mm-hmm. um, is revealed, um, and it's just dropped in casual conversation at the start of a show, and you're like, 
okay. Yeah. It it doesn't how do I, how do I express it? Uh, it's nice to see the Guardians of the Galaxy again, but this almost feels like a a drug trip variation, almost like because you part of the the nice thing about uh, Peter Quill is his hopefulness and his humanity and the goofiness. We don't have that. We have tangentially Peter, who's very much struggling with the um, absence of Gamora, following all of the stuff which happened at um, Endgame and all of that. And so it's sort of like, okay, no, they're not focusing on that. Uh, Rocket is very loosely in there, and at the end gets given a mechanical arm that is very familiar to people. And it's like, oh, wait, wait, what? Huh? Okay. Is, uh, right, sure, okay. Is that how you're still going to keep it tied to the rest of the MCU? Um, you've got a little bit of um, uh, Nebula, um, still played by um, Karen Gillan. Uh, Karen Gillan. But again, very briefly in there, this is very much the Mantis and Drax show. And those two work well. They worked quite well in their pairing in volume two. At least I thought they did. But I don't think it's good enough to survive 45 minutes and a Christmas movie where everything's a joke. And it's not actually kind of delivering anything on any of those characters. It's not progressing any of the stories whatsoever. It is, this is the caravan of courage. <laughs> um, I'm with you here. I thought this sucked. Like it mm. really sucked. Uh, I'm the cards on the table. I'm not exactly the most festive person in the world. You're not going to. Maybe I will get a Christmas tree for the background just for the lulls, but um, <laughs> um, I, I'm, it's not really how I roll as a rule. So that's that's probably worth declaring in the sense that, you know, a Christmas movie is not really ever going to be top of a pop for me. I'm not sitting there. Like, have you seen, I don't know if you've got Stan, but mm. the array of Christmas shite on, on display on Stan right now, they've got like, a, they've bought like half of Hallmark's back catalogue. Yeah. Movies. So that's not really what I'm about. So Christmas movie, I, I could take it or leave it. But I love what James Gunn does most of the time. Like I, we love, we both love Peacemaker. We are both mm -hmm. very impressed by Suicide Squad. I think. Um, so and you know, I think we were fanboys. We both go back to Slither and Super um, mm -hmm. stuff making before Marvel. <laughs> this is, uh, apparently, he wrote this in two days or something. Like he apparently went to Kevin Feige and said, "Can I do it?" And they sort of said, "Yeah, yeah, bring us a script and we'll talk about it." It's just, Secondhand information, what I've been told, yeah. and he wrote it in two days and brought it back, and it feels like it was written in two days. Yeah, it does. Um, it has got his usual polish on it. I mean, apparently he wrote like Peacemaker in like a month, but maybe that's what it takes. He needs a month, not two days. <laughs> I was expecting something along the lines of maybe Star Wars a Christmas Christmas special, like extra goofy and ridiculous over mm. the top, like that, mm. and that could have worked. Um, 
in, in looking into this, there was a a, a movie, a sort of video clip they made for Volume Two called um, Guardians Inferno by the Sneepers. You can find it on YouTube. They made it for the DVD, I think, and it's got David Hasselhoff in it, um, and it's like a parody of like a seventies film clip. Uh, oh similar. yeah, it's fucking great. Like it's a three minute music video with all the stars of a movie in it, but as themselves, like being wacky and dancing and stuff like that. And it's really, it's, it, it, it actually succeeds on being the, the level of being an absolute banger of a song and being funny and having David Hasselhoff. It's just works on so many levels. That's what I was expecting here. Cheese mm. up for Wazoo and cheese up for Wazoo could have worked with these characters, you know, like, um, but it, I couldn't figure out what this was for. Like, who was this for? So 20, 30 minutes, 20 minutes, and we were like, oh, okay, we've made this for 10-year-olds, right? Because it's mm. pretty goofy um, in the sense that, you know, Drax and um, uh, Mantis travel to Earth to kidnap Kevin Bacon as a present for Star-Lord because mm. like, um, he's his favourite movie star. But they don't realise he's actually an actor and not the person who saved that town by dancing. Um, he killed Jason Voorhees <laughs> in one of the movies. And that's kind of, and it's kind of goofy mm. um, of them trying to, you know, break into his house and kidnap him and, you know, steal all the Christmas stuff and having photos taken outside Man's Chinese Theatre because everybody thinks they're, you know, there's people who have their photos taken outside of Man's Chinese mm. Theatre uh, for tips. But then there's a scene just after that where the cops start shooting at them in the street. Yep. And, and like, they're flipping police cars around and stuff like that. And... I'm like, that's actually a little bit violent for a 10-year-old, I would have thought. And given the state of policing in the United States right now, you know, mm. police randomly opening fire on two people of colour in the street, um, be it they're not human, um, but, you know, and then Still. slipping police cars on their roofs. So like, it's just a little bit, I don't think that's, I don't know if that would be okay really for a 10-year-old in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, so I'm like, so it's not for 10 year olds or is it like, wh who did you make this for? It's, it's yeah. not cheesy enough to be funny. It's not straight enough to be entertaining. Like a standard Marvel product would have been. It's mm -hmm. just sort of stuck in the middle. It's kind of, yeah. it's almost earnest. Yeah. And, and like, it's, Actually, it, shouldn't, yeah. it shouldn't be, it was a, it was a Christmas, a bunch of guys dressed as aliens, if instruments who play a Christmas song. And the joke is they don't really understand what Christmas is. But mm. it's kind of not goofy enough. Mm. So it's almost plays straight. Like it's almost a straight Christmas movie starring mm. Marvel people. I'm like, I, I just don't. I don't know what you're selling here, James, but I don't get it. I kind of feel like it needed to be a story of two parts um, because it was kind of fun, the um, Aliens in the band and they're talking to um star lord and they're saying oh we've gathered together everything that we can from all these people about what christmas is and just them kind of regaling the what christmas is through song that was kind of fun but i feel like maybe that could have been the the hook to keep to try and actually bring to show the level of emotional turmoil that Star-Lord is going through, given everything that he's lost recently, you know, he, all the revelations, Yondu's death, um, Gamora's death, and then coming back and then going away and all of that stuff. 
Christmas being the thing that kind of brings him back out of his shell and him trying to show these uh, aliens who don't know, that could have been the more earnest side of this, more honest side. And then we keep on cutting back to Mantis and Drax having these a scenario where they they can go a little bit more uh, overt with their outrageousness and hell they could have even done kind of a reverse home alone kind of thing with kevin bacon where they're trying to get kevin bacon in and then the culmination at the end but the 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 end also seems really weird it's like okay um so you suddenly you're putting in this bizarre social message of kind of um consent with mantis's power for one thing and it's like okay that is a good point that is a very good point and but we've not addressed that anywhere else so throwing that in at the end at the denouement where everyone's learning their lessons and stuff it it felt weird and out of place and just didn't work um it was a hodgepodge of okay i kind of feel like kevin feige got stuck and just went oh yeah um, you agree to this right kevin oh yeah yeah, yeah you know um yeah well i mean this the, the disney plus slate doesn't have anything at christmas you know like shit he's right um yeah it's sorry look i mean I know some people like it but this is terrible this is mm-hmm. the worst thing James Gunn's had his name on for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, mm-hmm. it's no guide to the quality of what he's been produced with um, Volume Three because I mm-hmm. did not like it, and I just put that on the pile with everything else they've released on Disney Plus this year because it's all been garbage. Yeah, don't come at me with that fucking shit about Loki being good because it wasn't. No, it was average at best. Um, Moon Knight was good in parts, but didn't really do anything with the end. But I do have a little tease for next week. At least I think it will be next week. Um, The release of Apple TV's big Christmas movie, Spirited, with Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds. I've heard it's terrible. Yeah, yeah. I think everyone's hoping that Will Ferrell in it doing another Christmas movie will be like Elf, but no. <laughs> that moment I fear has passed. Um, yes. Did that yes. film what eighteen years old now or something? Yeah. Uh, by the way, I don't know. It's it's already out. I think. Oh, okay. Woo! Yay. Yeah. <clears throat> um. So yeah, I'm so it's excited. Got a- 15,000 votes on IMDb for a 6.6. So, you know, keep expectations to low. Mm-hmm. Have we got to an early sponsor break quickly? Let's get to uh, an early sponsor break, yeah. Um, All right. Sponsor of the week. Who is our sponsor of the week? Our sponsor of the week is the Australian children's television show, Pug Wall Summer. Um, Pugwalls Summer, P U G W A L L S, Pugwalls Summer, notable because the book it's based on was written by my kindergarten teacher. 
That's right. She stole the idea from me. But I'm not bitter. Margaret Clark, I'm looking at you. You're probably dead. I don't know. Um, <laughs> All right. Well, here is um, Pugwall Summer. Cash for cable? Yeah, and interest for any delay. Be back here at four. But Dad, I thought our partnership was a terrific idea. Son, if you want a dream, you have to learn what it costs. Now, I will not lend you money to chase what you know is a hopeless quest. I'll pay you back, I promise. for an I hour and that's only Bethy she's still got to tell the secret to Melissa and Pammy and, and Carrie and, and the rest who am I oh, that'll to take now? her all week oh Bethy right I mean I'm a reasonable guy you've known me long enough to know that but that isn't fair that's not even human that's a recorded voice gone berserk hey Psst. easy what are you doing here trying to ring you is your phone out of order? Nah, anyone who tries to get in contact with this place would do better sending smoke signals. But what's the problem? You know that cable you bought? Yeah. That's telephone cable. What? Hope is for recording. Great for phones. I'll oh, kill that con. Did you pay much for it? Nah, not much. That's a relief. What are you going to do with the cable when you get the proper stuff? Sell it? To sell something, you've got to have a buyer. 
And who wants all that telephone cable unless... You, you want, want a phone? phone? Oh, yeah! Then the rest of the world can make contact. Oh, you're a genius, Easy. I'll have to go under the house. Right. With all the spiders. Don't worry, they're well fed. I suppose I've got no choice. Forever. What the hell was that noise? I told you I shouldn't have left that food out, Dad. Whew, boy. That's a show. There you go. That was a very popular television show once upon a time here. Yep, and it's nice to see that we've been able to evolve. <laughs> Let it not be said that She-Hulk was the first one to break the fourth wall because... Puggle mm. Summit did it first. Um, <laughs> uh, it was meta before a meta was meta. Um, pathetic. My, my kindergarten teacher did wipe those books. Um, so There you um, go. Uh, and the guy who played Puggle went on to be in a metal band. So, you know, that too. <laughs> well, I could tell from the hair. Speaking of metal, do you want to talk a little about what you make of Ramstein's new record? Yeah. Ramstein... Um, a band I generally enjoy, but don't really partake too often of. Like I discovered them as many, many, many people did on the soundtrack for the original Matrix movie. Um, this came out of nowhere on um, uh, on Facebook, and it was a music video for their um, for their album Zate. And it's um, the song called Adieu. And it's really fucking weird and cool. And the music video is eight minutes long. And it's shot like a action movie in the realms of kind of dystopian future, matrixy, absurdist people walking around with uh, miniguns and things like that. But the song itself is actually really cool. <laughs> and so I downloaded the rest of the album and it's pretty fucking cool. It's a little softer in comparison to previous stuff that you've listened to probably with Ramstein. But it's good. And uh, miraculously, I think I actually understand a little bit of the German from, from high school. I'm like, ah. I finally have a use for that language. I never did anything with except order beer. <laughs> That's all you need to do. Yeah. Um, um, they, um, mm. They've made some interesting film clips over the years. They, uh, of course, the film yeah. clip for, for Pussy, um, if you're not familiar with it, was so explicit it could only be released on actual porn sites. Wow. Okay. That's, that's for legit. They legitimately made a film clip so it's that explicit. And um, look, I mean, your own taste will determine about whether that's something you want to engage in and see. But yeah. it's kind of incredibly well made, uh, I must say, um, for something that explicit. Um, <laughs> so, you know, they've, they've been famous for making pretty pretty crazy uh, over-the-top videos. Yeah. Um, I mean, and they true. remain so, one of... Sorry, go on. Sorry. They're one of the best live bands I've ever seen. I remember in 2001, I had a chance to see them here in Melbourne. They were yep. playing down in St. Kilda at the Old Palace, which is not there anymore. 
Mm. And I remember two gigs. I appeared for the big day out that year. And one side uh, at the Palais, we, he's still in St Kilda, PJ Harvey played. Yeah. And I was a big PJ Harvey fan at the time. Mm. Um, and uh, Rumstone played next door. And I'm like, Whoa, which one do I buy tickets for? To this day, eternally grateful that I bought tickets to see Rumstone because they've only been back here once since then. Wow. And they, it seems like everything about them is experiential. It's that the booming bass, the the vocals that they have, the visuals, as, the visual aesthetic of everything. And as you say, their music videos are always kind of top tier European music videos coming out. So, yeah, I can imagine that being good live. Uh, exceptional. I mean, I, I, I know you would never have been in the Prince Band room because it burnt down 10 years before you moved here. Um, but uh, I was you know, not involved. <laughs> that's what he says now. Uh, <laughs> but it was a very small room. Uh, and I was with my friend going, there's no way they're doing all their fire stuff tonight. Not in this room. Tiny, right? And they, they did. They did all their fire stuff, um, <laughs> you know, to a point where there's the keyboard player surfing over the mosh pit in an inflatable canoe. Um, and at one point, till uh, the lead singer Till um, spraying the uh, the mosh pit with what I assume was water coming out of a uh, prosthetic penis that he actually attached to himself at one point in time. Um, it's <laughs> it was a whole thing. Um, there you go. There you uh, go. One, if you ever, if you do have a chance, if you're lucky enough to live in a territory that they deign worthy to tour. Um, which is not this one. Um, <laughs> do yourself a favor and get out and see them if you like that kind of music. Or Metallica, mm-hmm. okay. Metallica has just announced their tour dates for the next couple of years. This country is not included. Fuck you. Fuck you, Metallica. 2019, they were supposed to tour here, and James Hetfield fell off a wagon, and so they cancelled it, and they haven't fucking found the space to reschedule. Isn't that, isn't that kind of a bit rude? You're a multi-squillionaires, you know what I mean? Like, and you're going to make money. You're going to make less money here, I know, than like you would in Europe or the US. But like you, three years ago, you were supposed to come out. You had the cancer because you didn't know how to keep it in your pants. And like all of a you know, you don't even find a space to go, you know what? We kind of fucked those people over pretty good. And you don't come back. I'm pissed about that. Fuck you, Metallica. No, have we considered offering them or possibly not offering them a Palmer while they're here? <laughs> Uh, I don't think they deserve a Palmer. They don't deserve a Palmer. Case, no Palmer. They deserve a Palmy. <gasps> I mm. bet they're the kind of guys who refer to it as a potato scallop. <laughs> and if you don't know that's a very Australian reference, people listening to the podcast and anybody unlucky enough to watch the stream, um, you're going to have to Google that one. <laughs> um. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> what else have we got? <laughs> um, you wanted to talk about peripheral. How is that going? It's going good. Um, it's taking its foot off the gas, so to speak, as um, uh, as we've uh, progressed through the season. I believe that we're actually about to receive the the season finale right now. Um. Uh, the peripheral here we go coming up eight episodes and yes so um they released just a couple of days ago episode seven the doodad 
which I have not had a chance to watch yet. Um, and then they've got Creation of a Thousand Forests, the finale. Yeah, it's there's there's a lot of interesting threads that are going, but none of them are really progressing, particularly at a, any um, impressive pace. And so you kind of feel like, all right, what is, is season one just all set up? You're not gonna you're not gonna get any payoff in season one. Or are they just saving it all for a big season finale? I don't know. Curious to see what happens. Um, the 8.2 for the doodad is current rating on that. And it is the highest rating since the pilot, which also had 8.2. Uh, 8.1 for empathy bonus, which was good. So hopefully the last two episodes really bring it back, but otherwise it's it's cooling off, cooling off, which is disappointing. It sounds like it's following the um the the standard lost formula we use these days. Intriguing mm-hmm. premise, mm-hmm. in you know, great pilot in the first couple episodes, but start without knowing exactly how it's going to end. Yeah, possibly. I mean, it is based on the William Gibson novel, so maybe it's just being true to how they've decided to separate up the novel for season one and two and things like that. I don't know what they're doing. I haven't read the book, so I don't know um, if they're splitting this, if it's a single book that they're doing or if there are many that they're kind of pulling in for William Gibson's work or expanding it, like the hobbit um it's got me a little nervous because this could very well be a another jonathan nolan um is writing too intelligently for for tv (laughs) yeah it's um it's look we can only hope when they stick the landing i remember going into so many last episodes of shows lately going Mm-hmm. Severance in particular. I thought mm-hmm. Severance was going to do exactly that. Set it all up and just sort of peter out in the last episode, but they stuck the landing out and made it all okay. better. Um, so I'm, I, I would be, we'll, we'll hold our fire on that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Disappointing not quite quite there yet. Yeah. Um, uh, can I, shall I quickly rattle off uh, thoughts on Reacher as well, just to wrap up the, the prime video stuff? By all means. Are you a fan? First of all, are you a fan of a TV f- films, the Tom Cruise films? Was I thought the first one was okay. The second one was a bit rubbish, but um, it was wasn't bad. I'd never read any of the books by Lee Child, um, but season one of Reacher um, is an adaptation of the first Reacher novel by Lee Child called The Killing Floor, and um, it stars. Alan Richardson as uh, Jack Reacher, um, probably best known for most people as he was the original Arthur Curry in Smallville. Um, And uh, Malcolm Goodwin plays Oscar Finley, who I only really know because he was a detective in iZombie a couple of years ago. Beyond that... Um, the only other name that I actually know, you've got 
Bruce McGill, who um, he is your typical Texan man. Um, when you see a photo of him, you go, oh, that guy. Ah, that guy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, there's one other person. Oh, yeah. Uh, Kristen Creek, who was, uh, she played um, Lana Lang in Smallville. It's a good show and particularly i've it it inspired me enough to start uh, listening to the book on audible and it's a good adaptation of the book it's solid um alan richardson delivers a good performance a truthful performance of the portrayal of jack reacher and certainly his body his shape and size he looks like someone you don't fuck with, and he is just going to wreck fools. Um, the, um, the criticism of Cruz, of course, was that Jack Rich is supposed to be a big, you know, big man. Yeah. Uh, whereas Tom Cruise, he's not a big guy. No, he's not a big guy. Um, and the relationship that he has, that he builds over the over the course of the series with uh, Finley as well as Roscoe Conklin, who is played by Willa Fitzgerald. Um, it's really quite a nice little um, Venn diagram of characters and the way that they interact with each other. The story is overall compelling and interesting. And um, whilst it is a little bit kind of paint by numbers, it's adaptation to a first book. So I think part of that is just how the novel was constructed of this, 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 and this. This is what I'm going to cover in my first novel. And they do it well. It's still very, very serviceable. I really hope that they get a second season because I think that Alan Richardson has been gifted a character that is very much within his wheelhouse of being able to deliver. We've talked about those kinds of roles a la... Wonder Woman for um, Gal Gadot and Black Adam for The Rock and things like that, where it's like, okay, we know what your parameters of being an actor are. Let's play within those lines and you'll, you'll sing. You'll be fine. You'll be happy. Um, yeah, it was, I wasn't expecting much from it. Um, you know, it's an adaptation of a, as you've said in the past for some of them, it's an airport novel. <laughs> and um, it actually is entertaining. It's engaging. The episodes are about an hour long, I think. Um, there's nine, um, yeah, 50, uh, 54 minutes to dropping down to 40 minutes. There's eight of them for the first, uh, first season. And... It just does everything it needs to do. It doesn't try and redefine what action or slash thriller storytelling is trying to be. It is very true to representing the character of Reacher from the books as far as I've experienced to, to this date. So it's enjoyable. So you don't have to be a fan of the films. You don't have to be a fan of the novels to get something out of this one. 
Yeah, you can absolutely just jump jump straight in as this is the first uh, adaptation of the first Jack Reacher novel. You can um, very comfortably get in there. The basic premise for it is Jack Reacher is arrested for murder and now the police need his help um, trying to find the killer um, in a sleepy town in a place where very clearly things are not as they seem. They never are, are they? It's, no, you know, never trust. What they seem, life would be something simpler. Never trust a small town, especially places called Long Melford. Ha! Absolutely, meth labs. Don't, places that don't close. Um, <laughs> um, do you want to talk a little bit about Amsterdam? Sure. So, Amsterdam is the new film directed um, and written by David O. Russell. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with that name, he's a fairly well-known director by now. Uh, American Hustle, Three Kings, Silver Lining Playbooks, The Fighter. Um, this is his first film for a little while. Um, part of his last film, uh, feature film before this was Joy, starring Jennifer Lawrence in 2015. Oh, yeah. um, so he's been quiet for a while. Um, he also did I Heart Huckabees, which is... Uh, Odd one, back away now. Uh, and I think you either like David O. Russell or you don't. This is the very opposite of Reacher. This is not airport novel stuff. You can just jump in and swim around like a warm bath, you know. <laughs> He's a very particular kind of director. And at mm -hmm. times I've liked his stuff. Three Kings is a good film. Silver Lining Playbooks is pretty good for a uh, for a rom com. But American mm -hmm. Hustle, in particular, I fucking hate that movie. And like how much now people just blew him after that film came out. Uh, mm. I always remember a quote from David O. Russell at the time was, I'm not interested in story, I'm interested in character. Mm -hmm. um, and that is a film, American Hustle, that will display. If you ever wonder what that a film utilizing that philosophy looks like, it's American Hustle and it makes zero sense. Um, <laughs> this film uh, has split people a little bit. 6.1 rating on IMDb, 48 Metascore. was a bit of a flop when it came out. Mm -hmm. Um Big cast, big cast. Christian Bale, Margot Robbie, John David Washington, uh, Amanda, uh, and Andrea Riseborough again, Anya Taylor-Joy, Chris Rock, uh, Mike Myers, Michael Shannon, Taylor Swift, Timmy Olyph Timothy Oliphant, Zoe Saldana, Rami Malek, Robert De Niro. Um, it's loaded. Uh, in the 1930s, three friends witness a murder and are framed for it and uncover one of the most outrageous plots in American history. This movie sucks. I mean, it's so fucking pretentious. Oh, really, really, the real trial to get through two okay. hours and 14 minutes of this to the point where I don't even think I can remember what the most, that's right, the outrageous plot was. I don't know what I remember. I had to stop and think about it because I just done such a great job of eviscerating this piece of crap from my memory. This is a terrible, <laughs> terrible bad movie and they should feel bad about themselves for making it um <laughs> the only person in this film who brings her a game is christian bale um so shock horror if you go back to thor love and thunder another very bad movie um and christian bale was in a different film to the rest of the cast mm -hmm. you know christian bale incredible performance from christian bale really interesting character you know, really well acted, and you're like, can we see less of 
fucking Hemsworth and more of Bale, please. Mm-hmm. Um, and same sort of thing here. He plays a doctor uh, who survived the First World War with some injuries um, and a bit of a drug addiction. But what a fascinating character he plays. And it's sort of um, it's Christian Bale in goofy sort of semi-comedic mode. It's a comedy mm-hmm. drama, according okay. to this. Um, so there are apparently jokes in this film. I might have been... Uh, in the toilet when they count because I didn't notice any of them. Um, the, the real highlight, apart from Christian Bale's character in this, is seeing Taylor Swift shove under a truck um, in the first 10 minutes of a film, which fortunately okay. ends her performance in this film. And if there's one film thing we learn about um, Taylor Swift in this film is that she should stick to fucking music um, <laughs> because she is a, not an actor. Um, mm-hmm. Look, I don't know if she'd get a. I don't know if she'd get a Guernsey in Pugwall summer. There, I said it. Um, you know, I think I think Husey in Pugwall summer, who was installing the phone on the before, was doing a better job. Um, <laughs> fuck. So essentially, we have a uh, a triangle of friends in this film. We have Christian Bale playing Bert Berenson, uh, Margot Robbie playing Valerie Vose. And John David Washington playing Harold Woodman. Mm. Um, uh, Christian Bale was a soldier or a, a um, you know an officer in the First World War and commanded mm. a unit in which Har- um, uh, Harold Woodman, David, John David Washington, served. And so, having served under uh, Christian Bale in the war, they end up close friends at the end of it and end up in hospital um, together, uh, having been injured in the fighting. Uh, at that hospital, they meet. Margaret Robbie's Valerie, who is, uh, uh, I guess, a, a wealthy socialite who is sort of, you know, doing her bit as a nurse in the hospital. And the three of them form a, a close friendship, whereas John David Washington, Harold's, and Harold and Valerie, maybe mm-hmm. a little bit more than a friendship, but they're two, they are sort of a triumvirate of friends. And after the war, they move to Amsterdam. It's because it's in the title, you see, it's, a, it's synergy. Wait, um, Amsterdam, New York, or Amsterdam proper? The actual Amsterdam in Europe. Um, and at some point, stuff happens and they go their separate ways. They, uh, Bert goes back to the United States to see his wife, who he doesn't really love, but reasons. And <laughs> being, <laughs> I trying to remember what. You ever go see a film and you go like, I hate this film so much. And we're like, two days later, someone's like, what's it about? And you're like, Christian Bale's in it? Um, <laughs> um, but uh, Harold and Bert witness, uh, they are called upon by, um, by Taylor Swift to do an autopsy on her father, who she fears has been poisoned, rather okay. than having just died of a heart attack, uh, because he's some sort of general of national importance. That yawn really does sum the film up. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's, um, it really, no, it's, it's completely appropriate. Um, and while they see her being murdered by being pushed under a truck, they're accused of a murder and have to sort of try and one stay, stay one ahead, um, step ahead of her. They meet with Taylor Swift to, to do an autopsy. While they're meeting with her, someone shoves her under a truck. But okay. they're accused of doing it themselves. Um, the person who doesn't is actually Timothy Olyphant. and I never trusted him. Uh, he was a bad guy in Die Hard 4. Um, yes. 4.0, thank you. Give yeah, it his full title. 
<laughs> and so you can see the plot starting to get convoluted. They have to stay one step ahead of avoiding police, using all the pulling all the strings they can to stay out of police custody. Who think they murdered Taylor Swift? Um, uh, obviously, it had something to do with Ticketmaster, I'd imagine. Um, and at the same time, they reconnect with um, Valerie and find out who she really was, and she's actually connected to this famous family. And wait. Is she actually like a, a, some kind of plucky executive? Well, we didn't have plucky advertising executives who were women in the 1920s, uh, did they? You don't know. I don't think so. Uh, I wasn't there. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um, it's it's basically comes down to is a, is a thing that actually happened in the, in the uh, in the post World War One era called the Generals Plot in the United yeah. States, where a wealthy group of um, corporate types tried to recruit. A military leader to um, uh, overthrow the government with a military coup. Oh. Um, so you can Google it; it's a thing. It really happened. Anyway, this kind of mm, formulates that plot, just sort of regurgitates that idea. That's the big thing. I should have put the spoiler thing up. Sorry, trust me, I did you a favor. <laughs> oh, this movie is long. It's boring. It's badly acted for the most part. It's a shame to see Margot Robbie really slumming it here. It's not her best work. Mm. I can't say it's her fault. I don't think she's given a lot to work with here. I think John David Washington was really good to go back to Tenet, which I mentioned earlier tonight, but he's not great in this. Uh, Anya Taylor-Joy, maybe she, she isn't in it for about 10 minutes, but she's fun. Mm-hmm. But oh, give this one a very wide berth unless you happen to be. And if you're a fanatical fan of what David O. Russell does, then I guess you probably would have already seen it or you're going to see it, mm. but if you're thinking about it, you're like, I really like all those movies he said that David O. Russell's done, loved American Hustle, loved all that, then, you know, maybe jump in. But, like, um, I would say this is this is not his best work. Okay. Um, and that's, um, it's long, it's slow, it's boring. Um, mm. Maybe just you Google would download it and Google, watch the bit with Taylor Swift going out of a truck and then turn it off. <laughs> Skip to the end. <laughs> Mind you, at, at Nick Cave the other night, there was a bunch of hipsters, uh, hipsters doofuses, uh, standing behind me waiting to get on the bus. Um, context: I was supposed to drive and park at the actual venue the concert was at, but it rained so much it was like quagmire. So we had to park mm-hmm. in the town fifteen minutes away and get a bus. Um, the the doof hipsters behind me were just talking about how what a great film Amsterdam was, how brilliant it was, and I'm like. Uh, insufferable fools. Um, but if I didn't already hate this film, I would have after that. But fortunately, <laughs> I got to cut that step out because I already hated it. <laughs> okay. Damning. Damning. Knives into Amsterdam there. All right. Well, um, should I talk about Wednesday on Netflix? Why? Is Tim Burton's involved in this? Yes. Yes. So this is a bit of a Tim Burton baby, which seems like the most obvious thing in the world. The Adams Family and Tim Burton, boom, match made in heaven. Um, because let's not forget, Tim Burton didn't direct the other Adams Family movies. It was Barry Sonnenfeld. So for people who have not watched them before and think that this is him going back to his old stomping grounds, nope. This is Barry Sonnenfeld. But this is Tim Burton's take on it. It is his... um, Shall we say... Marriage of two 
versions of Adam's family. So the Adam's family from the classic movies, which also co-starred Christina Ricci, who is in Wednesday, uh, was actually a bit of a departure from the classic um, Adam's family TV show, um, which had starred John Astin as uh, Gomez Adams. Am I getting that right? I think it was good. Yeah, I think so. Um, and the original um, Charles Adams comics. Now we've had quite a bit of Adams family over the over the years. And the original rendition or version of um, Gomez Adams was rotund and really weird and kind of, sort of almost like a like what you'd imagine a typical Igor in so like yes master kind of guys odd but he's got this passionate romance with this super tall thin live emotionless morticia um perfectly perfectly cast with angelica houston in those first two movies raul julia was cast as gomez adams in the um barry sonnenfeld movie and was mesmerizing as as a different uh an alternative version of gomez Talking about this show, we have got Luis Guzman as Gomez Adams. So he is definitely more of that classic Charles Adams picture image. He is shorter. He is not a very handsome, cut gentleman like Raul Julia was. Um, we've got Catherine Zeta-Jones playing Morticia Adams, who, let's put it this way, there are many curves on um, Catherine Zeta-Jones, but at the same time, she does not have that hourglass hip that Angelica Houston was able to deliver and the, the real pallid complexion. There's still a bit more, bit more tan on Morticia than you'd assume. Then we have got um, Jenny Ortega takes over the titular role of Wednesday Adams. Um, and we do have Pugsley making a bit of a cameo appearance, but he doesn't get much time to really um, shine or anything like that because this is a show about Wednesday Adams. The other big two members of the Adams family um, tree that we have, we have got Thing. Um, and we have got... Um, I've got to get his name right because I think it's Richard Armitage. And he is someone that so many people will go, oh, him, Fred Armisen. My apologies. He is um, Saturday, Saturday Night alumni. He was, he's been in so many things as just a, a bit part character, but he is a phenomenal disappearance of character. He disappears into his roles really, really well. And he plays Uncle Fester. Um, other noticeable names in here, obviously, like I said before, we've got Christina Ricci. Um, she is not playing any variation of Wednesday Adams or a member of the Adams family. She plays Marilyn Thornhill, um, one of the teachers at Nevermore Academy, um, which has got the principal, uh, principal Weems, played by Gwendolyn Christie, who most people will know from her time with Game of Thrones, also the completely 
completely mesmerizing performance of Captain Phasma in the last Star um, Star Wars trilogy. That was worth the wait, wasn't it? What they did with Captain Phasma. It was just 100%. 100%. absolutely worth all the pumping up they gave her. Yep, yep, 100%. Um, so where does this come in? This starts off with Wednesday Adams arriving in school. This is traditional Americana school of all of the jocks and every uh, facet of the school system that you can imagine. She sees something in either hers or Pugsley's locker. Opens it up. Pugsley has been put in there with an apple in his mouth. He's bound and tied. She has a vision and she sees who did this so she goes and gets revenge by all the jocks they're all on the swim team she unleashes um a swarm of piranhas on them and um through reasons she gets expelled instead of arrested for attempted murder um and gets sent finally um to the Nevermore Academy for the um, the outsiders or the the um, outliers. I can't remember what what name they call themselves. It's the academy that Gomez and Morticia went to, and Wednesday is none too pleased because she is very much of the opinion that she wants to walk her own path. She does not want to be in the shadow of Morticia because this is definitely more of a mother daughter. Um, combative relationship than anything else she is presented here as as you'd expect wednesday adams she has got that dry droll cutting sense of her own sense of morality and um moral standing um but she's also a writer and she is writing she kind of works through a lot of her own stuff in the books, but because she was um, almost arrested, she, uh, the court has said, yes, she can go to Nevermore, but she has to have therapy sessions. And she is very reticent on that. But as she, um, as the first week or so goes by, she has two attempts on her life and that inspires her to stay. She slowly but surely learns the comings and goings, in and outs, the cliques and groups of Nevermore Academy, as well as finding out the mystery as to why someone is trying to kill her and what is going on in this big, bold, scary world. Now, the first thing is you might be hearing, listening to that and going, ah, oh, that sounds a little bit like Sabrina the Teenage Witch on Netflix. And you'd be right. There are a lot of similarities. The difference is this one definitely has more of that sense of um, Adam's family comedy to it. Um, and the touch of Tim Burton on this, who directs, I think, three episodes, um, four episodes, is firmly felt on it that, and this is actually Tim Burton putting some effort in as well, not his previous run of just doing Disney blockbuster movie adaptations. Um, but the magic of this show very firmly hangs on um, General Ortega's 
portrayal of Wednesday. She is really, really good in the role. She is very, very good at balancing being able to actually elicit very subtle emotion and internal struggle from a character who notoriously shows no emotion, shows no no joy, no happiness, no no sadness or anything like that. She weaves that line very expertly. She has this is a great role to to show off her subtlety of ability. Um Everything else around it absolutely serves its purpose. The CGI is perfectly fine. The the who done it of it all is, I mean, yep, my my curse is definitely there. Of yep, I saw that coming, but I think most people will see this coming, and I don't think the mystery and the reveal of who is what and all of that is the point the point is entirely about wednesday's journey and that is actually enjoyable and every step of her effectively being forced to learn how to be an adolescent and how to actually make kind of relatable adolescent decisions and choices actually works quite quite well there's um a certain element of it, especially in the first few episodes where you're looking at it going, all right, this kind of feels like an evolution of the sequences where Wednesday and Pugsley go to summer camp in Adam's family values, and they are forced to do a couple of things. And it's a bit of a throwback, actually. Um, she goes on her first actual date in this, and um, the boy that she goes on a date with um says oh i got a horror movie for you and it's this insanely fluffy horrible delightful movie some people might know called legally blonde and just the subtle movements of her just kind of looking and uh, reacting like it's a horror movie it's very well done it's very funny um and it's a bit of a, it feels like a bit of a callback to when they go into the cabin and they have to watch all of those cute movies and stuff like that. And she comes out and just does her first mm. smile and things like that. I am, um, I never saw those um, uh, Adam's Fair movies in the 90s. I think maybe I really? aged out of that audience oh. maybe a year or two before then. I seem to be very fondly remembered, but I have, yeah, never saw them. Zero connection. That's fine. That's fine. I won't judge you too harshly. Um, everyone else is doing really well. Christina Ricci is um, perfectly solid as she usually is in um, in her role. Gwendolyn Christie is actually quite interesting in her position. Um, Morticia and Gomez with Catherine Zeta-Jones and Louise Guzman. Louise Guzman is great as Gomez morticia and Catherine. i have never really watched a movie that i thought ah yeah Catherine zeta jones is a great actress she i feel like she's definitely traded more on her looks than anything else and Ooh. that's a uh that's a that's a hard call really mm, i thought she was pretty decent in um Going back a very long way here, but I, I thought she was pretty decent in um, Chicago. 
Don't you fucking say that. <laughs> Don't you fucking say that. The one movie I've walked out on, no. <laughs> uh, any of it, um, entrapment, you know? Yeah, trading, trading on her looks, yes, and traffic. Mm, I, I think it's, yeah, I mean, she's not the, she's never going to win an Academy Award again, but like, you know. Um, um, but, not, and not so she, I think around. she also has the hardest part to, to do because Angelica Houston, in my mind, is so, so very much Morticia Adams. She is just absolutely incredible in the role, and that is an uphill struggle. Neither of the parents are given a particularly large amount of stuff to do, um, so they have, excuse me, very limited time to actually cultivate a character, but... Like I said before, this is very much a mother-daughter conflict relationships uh, story at its heart. And it mm, doesn't quite work. Like we, throughout the, the first kind of few weeks of her time at Nevermore, Wednesday is kind of being displayed images of her mother when she went through being captain of the fencing team and captain of the, the, the rowing team and all of these other successes and stuff like that. But it's never really highlighted to a point where I just go, okay, I, I get the, the, there's more reason to um, Wednesday's vitriol against her mother. But at the same time, there's not, any opportunity for Morticia to really kind of push it and just kind of say, I want you to be your own, your own person and that sort of stuff. It feels a little bit underwritten or a bit too much left on the cutting room floor, perhaps. I don't know. Um, by the end of the series, the characters are all overall enjoyable and likable and they don't know if there's going to be a season two and they even make a joke about it in at the end one of the one of the boys says hey wednesday will i see you next semester and she just walks away not giving any kind of response which is perfect for the character of wednesday but also we don't know if we're getting a season two if we don't that's fine wouldn't it, you be surprised if they did my sort of story today this is um racked mm -hmm. up some sort of records in terms of streaming hours yeah um and I think it seems to have penetrated the zeitgeist because I haven't watched it, but I keep seeing stuff on my socials about it. Yes, definitely. Um, Maybe it's down to whether Jenna Ortega wants to do it. I understand she's a bit of a budding star. Uh, and yes. from what you said here, she said that she holds the show together here. Yes, definitely. Um, without her, mm -mm. I mean... Potentially, they could if if they didn't if they weren't able to get Jenna Ortega back for a full season, and apparently she she didn't like the fact that they changed directors throughout the series. She would have a lot of trouble working in any TV show by um, if that's the case because it's not common to have the same director for the whole show. Um, they could potentially go, ah, oh, you know what? Maybe we'll do one called Pugsley, and it's Pugsley's turn going through, and it's a, a very different kind of beast, and it focuses on Pugsley, and we get Jenna Ortega in to just cameo occasionally as Wednesday. But I don't know why she's famous. Like, I know her name, and I don't know why. Like, I looked up all the films she's done, 
and I've never seen any of them. Yeah. I've never seen her in anything. But now I know who she is, uh, and I don't know why. Well, they've been teasing teasing Wednesday for feels like forever. Um, but yeah, I I'm I'm in the same boat. I know who she is, but I don't know who she is. Um, the other thing that makes me a little positive, but also cautious is the series creators on this one, the credited creators, which is Alfred Goff and Miles Miller. And it seems everything comes back to Smallville. They are the guys that created Smallville. And Smallville overall did a good job of telling a story of young Clark Kent before becoming Superman. But they also tread a lot of water. And they are also responsible for I Am 4, but then they've done other things like Spider-Man 2. So they're, generally they're pretty pretty successful team. But I don't know if everyone involved would want to come back. It seems like it was a little bit of a struggled production. Um, I hope so, because I would happily see more of General Ortega as Wednesday I think the fact that they have kind of married this little bit of Nancy Drew-esque kind of novelist detective kind of element to her is a very nice way of kind of allowing the dressing of a mystery of the week or murder of the season storyline hang that comfortably around her neck like a noose. It works quite well. I think that's very, very smart use of the um, of the character information there. Yeah. So it's a bit of a mixed view, but I feel like mainly you're like, yeah, give it a go. I think it's, if, if you like the first, first half hour of the first episode, you will happily enjoy because it does hit its, uh, hit its stride very early and it sits, sits comfortably in that and it just keeps going. This is enjoyable. Well, that's what you want. Enjoyable is about all you can hope for in this world. Mm-hmm. With, with a, some of the things that come out on streaming services, hell yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Did you have anything else you wanted to talk about? I am not going. I've got plenty more to say. I've got a few more things in the in the, in the works. We can Morty still continuing on. What am I sum that up at the end of the season? I've mm-hmm. also started watching a new show on um, Disney which is mm-hmm. called Chippendales because um, everybody knows you want uh, uh, tits when you are watching uh, 50 plus. Um, I have only two episodes. I've only watched two episodes right now. It stars Kamal Nandiani. Uh, so I'm going to keep my powder dry on that one until we have a bit more, uh, a bit more content to actually make a judgment call about. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is made by, I believe, the same people who uh, were responsible for the Pam and Tommy show that I talked about earlier in the year. Oh, yeah. Um, which I quite liked. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so I think um, some of the episodes are also directed by Matt Shackman, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, if you don't know it, I'm pretty sure. I'm just going to really quickly cut through. I'm pretty sure. He was a man who was responsible for uh, One Division. Oh, 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's you also right. direct this in Game of Thrones episodes. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. So, yeah. Um, I won't go too deep into it now. I'm going to hold my hold my pattern to it more, as I said. But if you're interested, if you like Pammy and Tommy, if you liked WandaVision, this is mm-hmm. nothing like WandaVision, I should note. Probably more in common with Pammy and Tommy. Check <laughs> it out. Check it out. And you can uh, listen in in the next few weeks when I have a little bit more to talk about with it. Okay. All right. I have just started watching a show, um, recommendation from uh, from viewer Patrick um, about um, Dairy Girls. <clears throat> so um, I will have more to say on that once I've consumed a little bit more. But so far, I've not even. Is it, people really love this show. Like I don't, I'm very interested to hear what you think about it. Yeah, yeah. So I'll say nothing. I right don't now. know what this is. But this, in, but I, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, because the the whole series has finished. I think it's four seasons. It's done. Um, yeah, I'm two episodes in, and I'm intrigued. So yeah, we'll have more to say on that in the future. There we go. We're going to have next week. We'll have maybe uh, some uh, dairy girls. We might have a bit of a chat about Chippendales, mm-hmm. and uh, I will have the thought review of the second season of Avenue Five, mm-hmm. um, which mm-hmm. is now concluded. And of course, hopefully, you know, um, all sorts of other shenanigans. Who knows what exploration, ex- adventures in the world of heavy metal George will find this week? Oh, I'm just going to go totally random and just go to like Indian punk rock. Sure. <laughs> may I recommend Bloodywood? <laughs> Bloodywood. Okay. They are an Indian metal band. I like them quite a bit. All right. <laughs> on that note ladies and gentlemen thank you very much for joining us this week uh we have been talking this has been episode 166 which is insane to think about talked about our chain movie of the week which was birdman we are going to be following with my link in the chain the book of henry fingers crossed it turns out to be good otherwise we will be expecting a pile of trash um uh we talked about guardians of the galaxy christmas special uh Ramstein, um the peripheral reacher amsterdam and wednesday we had a had a show um but yet we got it under and two we bought it in under two hours how good are we look at that look at that delivering it with a headache Ugh. professionalism all the way ladies and gentlemen <laughs> but thank you so much for joining us don't forget to like share and subscribe on all of the channels you may very well have noticed us we are now live twi- um on twitter as well but we are not verified elon musk um, you are not getting my eight dollars, at least <laughs> not yet. You will get you will get it later when I feel richer again. Um, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. We will see you next time. Good night. Good night.